The queen is coming. You have now entered. Ah. A city yeah. of love. The queen is coming. A city of hope. Ah. A city of rejuvenation. Yeah. The queen is coming. Ah. La la yeah. The queen is coming. Yeah. The queen is coming. La la yeah. The queen is coming. The queen is coming. Ah, la la yeah. The queen is coming. The queen is coming. La la yeah. The queen is coming. Here we wash your robe. Send out a probe. Travel the globe. Travel the globe. The lights might strobe. Light beams might bend. Sound waves might awaken all my sacred kin. Familia, Palenque, Corla, Aleke. Queen is coming. Shlala here. The Queen is coming. Palenqueros, get ready. Drum roll. Everything for this one. You are about to meet the Queen Mother, none other than the Dr. Yvette Jackson. She is my mentor. She is my spiritual mother. She is an amazing educator, a master teacher, a very, very special woman who has inspired my work, who has fueled my passion. And I am so honored to be able to bring her to you, Palenqueros. She believes and teaches that all of our precious children are gifted. Not just those that the society labels as gifted. All of our children are gifted. They all come with special gifts. And so therefore, it is our responsibility to activate those gifts, discover their strengths, because when we discover their strengths, we activate those strengths. And in doing so, we elicit high intellectual performance. She has worked with countless educators across the country to help them do just that to find that potential, to tap that potential in all of our students. We want all teachers to believe in a pedagogy of confidence. We want all schools to operate from the frame that they are developers of student strengths and that is their job to ensure that the pedagogy and the teaching within those walls is one that inspires confidence and elicits high intellectual performance. I am so honored to have her here as a guest and to allow you to meet this amazing woman from this episode. Please learn, please listen, know which questions that you should ask if you have students in schools and know what you should do as an educator to ensure that our students that are school dependent, have the practices, those high operational practices that inspire high intellectual performance. She brings hope. She brings confidence. 
to the field and to educators as their profession. She also does the same for parents, especially in this difficult time when many are still working in virtual and distance learning platforms due to the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. So with great honor and without further ado, I introduce you to the Queen Mother, Dr. Yvette Jackson. So then, yes, just give us a quick snippet who you are, what you do, and kind of what drives you. What is, what, what's that passion that fuels you? Right. Okay. So Yvette Jackson, and I would say that the passion that fuels me is the same thing that has fueled me for the last 40 something years. And that is the idea of looking at our kids and saying, they have the most brilliant brilliance, you know, if I can be redundant, that still after all these years is not honored, it's not valued, it's not identified. And we know why, I mean, besides the racism part, it's how the school systems are structured, as you know, to focus on a deficit mindset. And as long as we're continuing to do that, we will never identify what is the brilliance of these children. And as a result of it, then you have this deficit mindset about our kids, which is totally narrated, orchestrated. And so what my passion is, is to really blow those myths up and to substantiate that, not just with my own empirical research, why I went into teaching and and having taught the same group of children for three years in a row in an elementary school and saying, oh my God, these kids are so gifted. They are so brilliant. I could be very Piagetian and watch the development and then say, whoa, I've got to study this further on a lot of different accounts. One is if I see that they have these gifts, what do people look for when they think and believe children have gifts? Like, what is it that you go after? Well, first thing is you start saying, well, what are their strengths, right? We rarely say that when we're just talking about everybody else in education, but when they put that label on it. So one is to look at the strengths. The other is to really push kids to the frontier of their intelligence. That's my passion. My passion is to explode, destroy the myths, and then push kids to the point that their brilliance is just manifested. And then to get them to not only believe in themselves, but to get teachers to not only believe in the potential of the students, but for teachers to believe in their capacity to elicit that brilliance. So what we have as I segue into um, you know, the work. And so I've been working for years with the National Urban Alliance. So, you know, I mean, they had three beliefs that intelligence is modifiable, that when we talk about focusing on high intellectual performance is something that everybody benefits of it. And I'll say, when I say everybody, it's not that just the students, when you focus on high intellectual performance, teachers get motivated, they get jazzed up, they start feeling Wow, there are possibilities with these students that otherwise I have not been guided to look for. And the other belief of NUA is that all about that interaction of culture, language, on cognition and learning. So one, as I said, is to blow up the myths about our kids, but the other is to get 
teachers and students, and this is where I make the segue, is if we're trying to get teachers to believe more in their own capacity, to affirm their strengths, why they went into it, to remember, right? So my work is about two words. Pedagogy of confidence is about remembering and discovering. Remembering why we went into teaching, remembering what it was like for us when we were students and what motivated us, what drove us, what, why we had that one or two favorite teachers, what did that teacher do? And now it's about discovering how we use those memories to, as a path, as a guide for trying to discover, set up the pedagogy that's going to help us continually discover the strengths in our students. So that is what drives us. And, and so my whole work now, looking at the mindfulness aspect of this, how do we stay awake? How do we pay intentional attention to those demonstrations of the giftedness yeah. in our students, as well as paying attention to things that should be totally impermissible? They should just not be happening. And, and so I say that's where the segue of all of this, the intersection of all of this with equity consciousness becomes the manifestation of the work that I'm, I'm trying to do now, whether it's at the, I teach a teacher's college at Columbia University. I'm still senior scholar for National Urban Alliance. I am like a consultant for American University, for the dean there, for Kathleen at the University of St. Thomas. And it's all about trying to change um, the trajectory for our students and for those teachers who do believe in them, but have been ignored. Yes. And I think that that part right there, the teachers that believe and have been ignored, I um I think we met maybe about 15 mm-hmm. years ago and the, the what happened was I was at a conference and I was at the conference and the session that I was supposed to go to was full. And I was kind of just wandering through the hall, looking through the book. And um Ami said, Hey, uh-huh. you trying to find somewhere to go? And I swear. Yeah, but it was like it was just Faded to happen. That was the session I was supposed to be in. And I went into that session and that is exactly what happened to me is that there was a a different, there was a shift in my confidence because I was finally hearing something that resonated with the place that I was in. I want my students to be able to achieve. And it feels like the system that I'm in is so counter to right. what we want for our students. And it was ever since that day, I was like, this is what we should be focusing on. We right. should be exactly. looking at their strengths. We should be right. using the strategies that we have to celebrate and activate those strengths. So your work is, I think, you know, transformational for the students if teachers yeah. use it, but also for teachers who sometimes feel backed into such a corner. Exactly. I'm not sure what I'm doing is actually touching my students, right. but the system is telling me to keep focusing on deficiencies. Right. For me, I often describe it, and I know you didn't watch the movie because I told you before, is in The Last Dragon, they when you come to the final level, you get this glow. And I was like, she's glowing and she's Oh my God, her, that I is- want the glow. <laughs> That is so funny. You should say that because I was just going to say, and I, t- I 
totally forgot about that conversation until you just brought it up. But that there is a real neurobiology behind that glow. That when we talk about this, when teachers are feeling, when they see their students succeeding, that becomes their own empirical research. It becomes their own firsthand knowledge, right? A primary resource. It becomes their own. And so what starts happening is they then respond to it by endorphins and dopamine going off in their body as neurotransmitters that actually fuels the glucose in the body. It's the glucose then that actually energizes us as teachers as a result so that we are really glowing. And if you can take a snapshot, and we can with MRIs, take snapshots of the brains of teachers when they're seeing their students perform at high levels, you would see a real glow in certain areas of the brain. That is a fact. And so if we know that, for those of us who believe that there is potential, then we have to act on that. And, And the idea is, Some people, when we have this discussion, just say that, well, I see a lot of strengths in my kids, but they're not academic strengths, right? Right. Well, the idea is then how do you connect those strengths to academic content and higher order thinking? You can get there and meet the standards by moving through that as the aperture, the opening for this kind of um, convening of their brilliance and demonstrating that. And and so much, and the last thing I'll say about this is when Carol Dweck came out with her work talking about fixed mindset, so many people jumped on board because it is a brilliant theory. The problem is how do you translate that into practice? Because people will say that and all I need to do is I'm going to tell kids that they can really do it. We're going to focus on that. And then I'm going to grade them on something and give them a D without having any prerequisite work around it, without having any kind of intermittent formative assessment to go along with it, then wait, I wouldn't be feeling confident either. I'd be saying, okay, that's a nice philosophy, but you keep giving me D's and C's and what is that about? And that's where we get into this whole idea of, of, you know, thinking about it in terms of the not just the entity theory, there's a theory of mind that this author Medina, who wrote 12 uh, Brain Rules, and he talks about it where kids are trying to figure out, one, for those teachers who don't support them, why not? Why don't they believe in me? What is it that makes them think I'm less than? That's the, that theory of mind. They're trying to understand that, especially when you have little kids in kindergarten are going to school and being told by their moms, you're going to go to school and you are going to learn. You are going to love it. And they do. They go into school so excited. They're going to learn. And then by the, in several states, by the end of kindergarten, They are already marked as labeled as a deficit in something. And I go, excuse me, that's why they come to school. They're in kindergarten. You can't say that. And so that whole idea of moving them, uh, that's where, again, where they're trying to figure out, my mom told me I'm going to love school and I'm going to, but now I'm being shown implicitly and explicitly that I don't have this. And then comes what Wiener calls the attributional theory. The kids are saying, well, then what do I attribute my failure to? It must be me. 
it's got to be me, right? Because that's what they're saying. And looking at me, they even talk about the gap and this and and it's not about me. And so that idea of what I attribute my success or my failure to is going to be the deciding factor of how I then proceed as a young self-determined person. So I go all through that to say that is why I started by talking about what fuels me, what I want to do to dismantle these kinds of myths, to blow up the those things that should be the impermissibles, and then to say there is a way not just for students to thrive and flourish, but for you as the educator to walk out of school and say, wow, those kids are deep. They have, you know, they have... They can be, and not only can they be engaged, they're born to want to be engaged, every single child. And that's why I always say, you know, well, what do you do when kids start crawling? You better plug stuff up because <laughs> those kids, right? You yeah. know, you yeah. have these kids. They are experimenting. They're trying. Why? Because you are, have the propensity and the predisposition. What cuts it off? We know. But we also know from both cognitive and neuroscience research that you can recharge that engagement, that you can recharge that propensity for success that these kids are craving for. Nobody wants to be a failure. Right, right. And the idea that you have to know your kids to know their strengths, right? So you got to build community. You want to situate the learning and um, the things that are relevant to them. I know there's that um, in any way and with the pedagogy of confidence, it speaks to that interconnectedness of culture, language, and cognition. Can you talk more about that interconnectedness too? Yeah, I would love to. The, you know, the first person who got acknowledged for his addressing the impact of culture on cognition was Vygotsky. And, you know, so it's so interesting because now when people talk about culturally responsive strategies, they say, oh, this is the thing we need to do for kids of color. Oh, well, see, the interesting thing is Vygotsky was Russian. He lived in Russia. There were no kids of color running around Russia. (laughs) There just weren't. But he knew by studying how people learn the social dynamics of learning and that social dynamic looked at culture. What are the things that are meaningful and relevant to the kids, the rituals, the traditions, the learnings, the beliefs that either push them along or hold them back, but that become the frame for through which they make meaning or don't make meaning because there are barriers that are in there. So when we talk about cognition, we're talking about how do students, how do people construct meaning? What affects how they come up with ideas or decisions or goals is their frame of reference because it's that frame that's going to affect not only how they're making meaning, but their perceptions about things, right? Mm-hmm. And then the language part of it is the language acts as the the way of transmitting or the exchange before between the thinking and the culture and how that then is um, shared with others is through your language. So you see, language becomes really critical because it's not only a medium for sharing your thinking, but it also it also is about sending messages. 
So in other words, when we use disparaging othering language, we're sending messages to kids that they are taking in the meaning of that, or at least they're trying to understand back to that whole idea, the theory of mind and the attributional theory. They're trying to understand why are you calling me a minority, especially what, what does that really mean when if I'm thinking about it from a mathematical perspective, that means less than. So you're you not only you, others who are not people of color are using it, but we use it ourselves. How many of us, because they're on government forms, we say, oh, we have a whole group of minority kids. Really? How many? Well, 100 percent of our kids are minority. Well, then how yeah, are they majority. How could they be a minority? It doesn't even make sense. But you see how it's a changing of the framing yes. through a language to change, to share a message. Or when they now use the term subgroups. Well, mm-hmm. the last time I looked at math again, sub means to take away from, or I'm from New York City, a subway is mm-hmm. underneath, you know. And so we're saying you keep you, the when we use this language, we're set. We are sending out these messages that are subliminal and are so destructive that kids, that's why they don't believe that they're capable of because the society is calling. And that is why in our work, I have challenges through an equity consciousness. I'm like, what are you paying attention to? What should we be thinking about that should be impermissible where should we change language? I don't care what it says in the government form. You don't have to use the same language. When you're with the kids in the school, you don't have to say minority. You don't have to say he's a special ed kid. You know, what does that mean that he's not capable of anything? What what does that mean? So how do we change our language? And that, again, is this idea of a pedagogy of confidence is The term pedagogy really means to lead the child. That's what it really means. And then people have taken it to say, well, what's the art and science of getting there so you can lead the child? Well, you have to think about everything that we've been looking at just now. You know, the idea of the impact of culture and language, knowing that when I start with strengths, that is where engagement begins. Knowing that if I'm talking about really pushing students to the frontier, their intelligence, that I would not separate and track kids because that would not be helping them move to the frontier of their intelligence. And how do we gift ourselves with this idea that if you believe, we can use that belief to change our approach and what you are going to benefit is going to be or how are you going to benefit is the response that students are going to give you in terms of this enormous engagement, which is the yeah. first thing, the learning, building new strengths for them. And uh, that is our goal. In other words, thrive and flourish. How do we help our children in a pedagogy of confidence? The goal is thriving and flourishing. The way to do that is to lead the child through the kind of pedagogy that's going to enable and elicit that in the end is so they can feel valued. Right. And that's what we want. We're supposed to be an organization that believes all means all. Exactly. And, you know, I've read some other pieces and I've seen it myself with my own kids that we say all means all, but we only celebrate the top 10 percent. Totally. Right. So we have systems where 90 percent of the students watch 10 percent of the students always be recognized. Exactly. They follow that same group of kids from kindergarten up to 
they graduate, it's the same group. You right. know, usually that's um, being recognized. That does something um, to students who are, who are hearing. We want all of you to achieve, but we only recognize right. a certain that's group right. of you. Right. Exactly. And what yeah. is that? And why is that? It's not only because the feds say that, but because they say it, look how many teachers went up in the same systems. How many right. people who are teachers when they were going to school were identified or labeled as having high ability? Yeah. Uh, maybe three to five percent of them. So then that must be the standard we should be looking at, because. Right. If I don't believe that that's possible for myself, why should I then believe that for other students? So right. it becomes critical. And you've taught us being, because you're my master teacher. And you, you are my favorite student. Using text um, from the Children's March. Right. And bringing that text forward. So as I've watched the students, the children really rise up at this moment, I've exactly. thought of you. So exactly. Many that's right. That is exactly right. And how many people in this country don't even know the story of the Children's March? And then you know that I have done that, that comparison of Harry Potter looking yes. at Dumbledore's army and comparing it. I said, she has got to have seen the Children's March because that's exactly what the story was. But the point is, like you're saying, it is the, the younger people now who are really leading. So when I say this is about helping all of our students to not only thrive and flourish academically or to be college and career ready, but because we need their leadership. It is them who once again got out there and said, we have to march. I, we don't, we know COVID is going on. We're going to put on the mask and we're going to get out there. It continues to be, all kinds of um, repercussions as a result. And why is that? Because there's strength in those yeah. kids. And yeah. the idea is how do we stop it? No, you can't. You know, once it is really realized, I mean, like we have social media and all that, you, you can't make that go away. You yeah. know, not going to disappear. In fact, we, we just keep seeing more and more. Yeah, I'm so proud of the children. I mean, um, what I'm seeing and and how they're leading, even, you know, I'm here in Florida when Parkland happened. So many here in Florida um, sat in that town hall and just have not stopped. And it's inspirational. And I think we look at some of these kids and we think of, you know, well, uh, achievement. We have to think about achievement differently, right? Yes, absolutely. What are they achieving? What are they achieving? And that's why if we started the year, and I know most of your schools have already started, but it's still early enough to, to do two things. One is identifying student strengths from the beginning of the year. You don't know what it is, ask them. What are they really good at? Some may not have an answer for you only because they've never been asked that question. They would say, I don't really know. Then you have to say, what are you deeply interested in? Because then they'll tell you what they're interested in. You go, really, you're interested in that? What do you do with it? And then all of a sudden you're listening to them and you hear all of these strengths. They can identify it in each other. But the other side is you decide at the beginning of the year, what are the characteristics that you want to develop that you know helps a person be able to be not only competent, but to contribute to society? Whatever those characteristics, those habits of mind, like Art Costa would say, the dispositions, then you have to say, if those are the dispositions, what are we doing in our pedagogy? 
that nurtures those dispositions. And those are some of the things we should be assessing. Are students then growing in terms of their um, their resilience? We know they're resilient because they're coming to school and all kinds of stuff or even virtually. It means that we have to be saying, what do we want? What would be indicative of thriving and flourishing? What would that look like academically, socially, emotionally? And then what am I doing pedagogically that's going to get there? That's why we have the seven high operational practices too, right? So we're mm-hmm. talking about identifying and activating strengths and building relationships and setting high intellectual performance as the focus and providing the enrichment and integrating prerequisites and really situating, like you said, the learning, connecting to the students. And the last is to really give them authentic voice in how we're doing our teaching, how we're setting rituals in schools, how we're having students, if you have discipline codes, how come the kids aren't writing the discipline Mm -hmm. codes? They, They like order. They want order, but they certainly don't want it to be where they are being oppressed as a right. result of that right. or how it's different for teachers than it is for them. You know, they know this, they're watching. They know that and they are watching. And so when they are rebelling, often it's because they're saying, wait a second, what is this? You're t- saying one thing and you're doing something very different to me. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the question becomes, do we work to change our mindset first or do we work on our practices first as if there has to be an order? So they have to be in simulcast. Mm -hmm. So you have to be, and there's one thing that undergirds both of them and that's building your own epistemology. What's the learning that you have done about learning? See, because when you understand how learning happens, it shifts what your focus is. So, for instance, talking about Vygotsky again, learning happens through social interaction and using a cultural frame of reference. Well, if we know that that's important to learning, then I've got to put that out there in terms of the work I'm doing. And when I do, my belief is going to start changing, but I won't be able to do that if I don't have the action that really follows behind that. Like I've got to be putting in the practices, the kinds of strategies that are going to, first of all, allow me, give me things to um, believe more and substantiate the the belief, but it's got to be in the action. It's got to be in the action and it's got to be simultaneous. So if you're not a real believer in a potential, but you started the year by identifying student strengths as a practice, you'd start believing a little bit differently because then you're saying, whoa, even if I don't see those strengths happening in the class, there is, are things that these students are so engaged in that they are motivated to succeed in those areas. Now, I've got to take those as qualities that I would want to develop and use and so that's why you can't you can't believe and not do the practices right first of all you wouldn't do the practices if you didn't believe but certainly it's the practices that are going to help you believe even more deeply because you're going to be getting the demonstration of those gifts the desire the engagement the the desire for challenge that the kids had there the desire for feedback that they they love feedback so they know am i on the right path but feedback is not f 
That is not feedback, right? right? Feedback is all in between. How are you guiding me, mediating for me so I can achieve? So it's got to be at the same time, belief and practices go together. And then, of course, that would lead to the last section of POC, which would be structures. What are the structures that you set up that are going to enable these practices to be cultivated? Yes. And I'm going to um, link your book, The Pedagogy of Confidence, in our show notes so all of our listeners can find it. But I also wanted you to share what you're working on now, what's coming next. What I'm working on is is the whole idea of, well, there are three things. One is because of what's happening between virtual teaching and hybrid, I've got all of these leaders, particularly school principals who are saying, you know, we are so losing, losing our confidence. We, because on a dime now, we are made, in New York City, they still don't know, let's say, for instance, whether they're teaching in person or whether it's virtual, whether it's a hybrid. So just that alone, yeah. not knowing, but then even with that, how do you take what was usually traditionally expected in terms of what we can do with students and now do it in a way that's totally virtual. And I don't see people running around and giving the kinds of um, financial supports that then are going to help the virtualness. So what I'm working on is how do you work with leaders to remember their why, to remember that they have these strengths and that this is an opportunity for you to take away the things that now, if you can't do them virtually, maybe they weren't important to begin with. Or maybe the real focus is like in gifted land where the focus is around engagement. What are you doing that really engages the students? And it's so hard virtually, but not. Not if they're being engaged around situating you know, the learning in their life, but doing it virtually. Giving them the platforms that can be used, whether it's Instagram, where kids... You can have a whole school of children like you used to have assemblies, but you're doing it on that Instagram uh, platform to have kids or have students working with students in other schools in your district. You can do that now. You can set up that platform for them to be able to work together. We used to talk about how do you get students in middle school to maybe mentor students who are in the fourth grade or fifth grade. We can do that virtually. All you've got to do is set the programs up for it, but you've got to give the time to it. So what comes off of the list that really isn't serving you that now you can put in these different types of um, opportunities for students to feel that they can not only communicate differently, but they're valued and that they can get into this project-based learning, but with teams from all over the place. But I think more importantly to get to the whole idea of how important mindfulness is, kids are seeing relatives who are dying. They're seeing on TV what's happening with Black Lives Matter. They need to have that kind of quiet time as part of the day, even virtually, where the teacher says for the next five minutes, we are just going to be breathing in and out. Mm-hmm. In and out. We can do that, which allows them to reboot. There are all kinds of studies, you know, in NUA, we worked with a, a school in San Francisco, Viz Valley, where they were having all kinds of issues, a large Samoan population in the school. And those kids were really being otherized. There were suspensions. 
Anyway, the principal decides the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes of every day, the whole school's going to have this concentrated quiet time where the kids and teachers together just yeah. learn to breathe, just take that time to reboot and to help that wiring, the neurological wiring that is getting so frayed now because of the ongoing trauma that we're all going through. So mm-hmm. working on that idea of integrating mindfulness, not as just the quiet time, but how are you approaching learning and teaching with this mindful self-awareness, thinking about compassion and empathy as being so important to how we move to the next level. So that is a big thrust that I have now. And so working not only writing about that, but looking at that in terms of that's what equity consciousness is. Mm-hmm. It's about being conscious, being awake, or we might say be woke. How are you woke <laughs> about what is really important? And then what through the equity side is what's needed for kids to thrive and flourish. So all of this together is my platform for saying, if we're really going to be equity conscious, what are we talking about in terms of the reality of the need for the mindfulness part to shift our reality from deficit to an assets model and how this is a reciprocal process. If we're going to think about what kids need, how do we do it for ourselves? How do we realize that we better put our mask on first, meaning, and I don't mean the mask just because of COVID, but like they do on the plane where they say, before you go to try to help somebody, put your own mask on first, affirm yourself. And the more you're affirming yourself, the more you will have uh, the desire to affirm others. We've had a lot of conversations about just seat time. You know, we have yeah. seat time requirements of how long the school day has to be and even the work day. I think this whole thing has shown us that the work day, y- you can get things done without having to do them the whole eight hours. Exactly. Exactly. They, they don't right. need to be in front of that computer that long to get things done. So exactly. hopefully it'll help us to be able to think more about what we want students to learn and not how long they have to be there. I mean, a place I would recommend to look at conceptually that idea is with Joe Renzulli's work, right? And he used to focus on how do we look at giftedness which with a much broader aspect. But he talked about curriculum compacting. How do you compact the curriculum yeah. down to the conceptual understandings, the higher orders of thinking, and the kinds of experiences that bring them forward? That reduces the time that you need to do that. And then you have time for kids to do a much more around their own research, documentation, bringing those, their own documentation back to the table, having much more time for teachers and students to have conversations, discourse. How do you develop academic language if you don't put students in authentic situations where they're talking using that language? Look at the opportunity we have to do that now with these social platforms. And, and that becomes critical. Um, what advice do you have for others that want to create? What do you recommend for people that might be stuck, that need to move whatever their thought is into some type of action? The first thing I would recommend is mindfulness. You really develop your own, own mindfulness. It just is a matter about giving yourself time to be able to reflect and think about what are the things that are important to you? Am I doing really what I 
think is important? Am I, if something is important in terms of a belief, what's my practices? I mean, time to really be reflective about that because usually we don't take that time. If we do start taking that time, I'm talking about like five minutes. Even if you only get five minutes a day where you say, I am just going to sit here and I am just going to breathe and I'm going to focus. What it does is really clears out your thinking so you can then go back to making much more creative ideas. So one is taking the time to be mindful because that means working on yourself, like I said, reflection, but then it means preparing yourself to be able to embrace others in different ways. The second is definitely having an assets focus. If you will focus on how do I look at strengths as being not only important, but that that's my job to nurture that and to make the application, I cannot say how much better you will feel than what we've been experiencing now. So if I can take any those two things for you, you will see that the neurobiological impact on yourself to feel one more fuel to go on, to be more active, to be more inspired will take you to a place where you can, at the end of the day, you, you're still going to be tired, right? Because you're working hard, but you won't be wiped out. You won't be really crushed. What you'll be is you've used a lot of energy. You might need to reboot, but we've been walking out of schools feeling defeated. And now we don't have to be defeated. I mean, it's hard work, but it's all about you in that classroom or with those fellows. How are we going to create in our class? The last thing I'll say is a community of belonging. Mm -hmm. Right. Where I, I would say, so what do I mean by that? How do you work with the students in the class where you are really focused on paying attention to letting them know that they're valued? That's why. Focus on their strengths. If you believe that I have strengths, you value me. How do you build an affiliation in a classroom where all the kids say, I come here because this is where I belong? See, because I love to say this now, what is it that we're all longing for? Well, Maslow used to talk about that, right? We want survival. We want safety. We want social belonging and we want self-esteem. If that's what we're all longing, then we should have communities of belonging, right? right? Where those assets are looked at. So me as the educator, if I'm looking at those four things, the strengths with the affirmation, the idea of a community of belonging and the mindfulness, I will be in a very different place in my educational journey. And it's the place of purpose. Yes. Love so it. You are inspirational. Well, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so I'm glad of that day that you appeared um, to have. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, you know, I mean, we could talk about it even with scriptures. I remember in James, I mean, he talked about what is faith without action? You have to have the actions. You can't say, I have faith. No. What are the actions that show that? And that's what you provided. I love you so much. Thank you. for. I love you too. That was none other than the queen mother, Dr. Yvette Jackson. And if you're an educator, she reminds us so much of what our why is and how to get in tune with our why to create a pedagogy of confidence. If you're not an educator, she also does the same thing in inspiring you to Take your belief and couple it with your purpose and move into action. 
So we always have a call to action at the end of our podcast, Palenqueros. And so your call to action is to really dig deep, to use the mindfulness practices that Dr. Jackson pointed out and sit and think about what it is that's living in you, that purpose that you have that you want to bring forward to help make our world better. The Palenque is about being a voice for change, but being a voice for change also takes action. So that's our call to action is that you find yours and you continue to live it. You know, you can always visit www.thepalenque.com for more information. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public, and now Google Podcasts. We would love to hear from you, Palenqueros. Follow us on Instagram at the Palenque Podcast, on Twitter at the underscore Palenque, and on Facebook at the Palenque. This is the one and only Queen Lala here with you. Looking forward to next time. Take care, all. The queen coming. Yeah, Lala, Set the wrong body armor. Why you ass? Present for the queen mother. What's your contribution? It's a community. You know it spells mutiny. We take the ship. We turn the bow. We flip the stern. You got to learn. Gucci gas man. Set the wrong body armor. Why you ass? Presents for the queen mother, Gucci gas mask. Saint Laurent body armor, why you ass? Presents for the queen mother, queen is coming. Lala Hills, queen is coming. Yeah, yeah, the queen is coming. Lala Hills, queen is coming. Yalla, yalla, yalla. The queen is coming. Lala Hills. Queen is coming. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. I said, the Queen is coming. La La here. I said, the Queen is coming.